0: Welcome to McKnight's Long-Term Care Newsmakers Podcast, where we share the latest information and views from industry leaders.
1: Hi, I'm Kim Marcellus, Senior Editor of McKnight's Long-Term Care News. Today, we're talking about infection prevention and its evolving role in nursing homes. I'm joined by Dr. Buffy Lloyd-Preachy, a certified infection preventionist and founder of IPC Well. She has worked extensively with nursing homes and for government agencies pushing for quality improvement. Earlier this year, Buffy published Broken, a book that examines systemic nursing home failures during the pandemic and recognizes the heroic efforts of staff to bring about needed change. Buffy, thanks for being here. Thanks, Kim, for having me. Glad to be here. So let's start with the book. Um, As I've mentioned to you previously, many times at McKnight's, we find ourselves uh, offered consumer-oriented books that are pretty critical of nursing homes themselves. Uh, But I thought you took a really balanced approach here in both recognizing major systemic issues and some of the resource challenges, particularly during the pandemic. So I'm curious who you wrote this book for, who needs to read it, and what your call to action is. Yeah,
0: well, thank you. So definitely as you describe it, it was very challenging actually to make sure that I was writing it for, I really wrote it for, first of all, the healthcare workers and really a a shout out to all of their heroic work, especially during the pandemic in long-term care. Second to the consumer, as you can learn so much about the industry and many times what we hear on the news is all the bad information and so i really wanted to give the consumer of this healthcare service the kind of the peel the curtain and see what's going on behind the scenes and perhaps why the care isn't the way that we expect it to be and then thirdly to policy and decision makers to really show them again what we're up against and how oftentimes as providers Providers feel they're in kind of a straitjacket, and they want to provide the right care, but they're not necessarily given the tools or the resources. So, the call to action is really, if you fit into any of those categories, is to read the book and then just to see what you can do to contribute to advancing this healthcare services. Whether that as a consumer, it's joining your family council meeting, it's becoming involved with one of the nursing home associations. Um, I, I provide a lot of those resources for healthcare providers really to continue advocating for um, improved working conditions. And also that is true for the policy and public decision makers as well.
1: So as you mentioned, you do talk a lot about policy, particularly changing policy throughout the pandemic and the challenges that created. Uh, But really what hit me was as you visited nursing homes and and you were in various states, Uh, I know you're in Arizona, you were in Detroit, I believe, uh, Idaho, I mean, lots of different regulatory environments. But really what grabbed me were some of the, I'll, I'll say scary, on-the-ground moments that you had going in to help assess and create programs for people. Um, we could talk all day about those failures, I think, yes. but can you share a couple of examples that demonstrate how far nursing homes still have to go when it comes to infection control?
0: Well, I first want to say that none of us were prepared for a global pandemic. Uh, hospitals weren't prepared. That was evident by our lack of personal protective equipment, by the lack of of really um, the, the the way that the guidance came out, the timing of the guidance, and so it was evident that as as a country, perhaps even as a world, we were not ready for this. Um, so, nursing homes, of course, were not ready, and. And so this was very evident early on in the beginning with the lack of PPE. I, you know, you talk about the scary situations. The first 6 months of the pandemic were absolutely terrifying as far as, you know, we didn't have what we needed. Staff, I I worked with a facility that was duct taping garbage bags together because they didn't have any gowns. You mentioned, you know, in Detroit I worked with Doctors Without Borders in Detroit and also Houston and we went into this one facility in Detroit that was a brand new building. It had opened January of twenty twenty and there were no hand sanitizers put up inside of the rooms or outside of the rooms. They had carpet placed. And so to me, you know, we didn't have the infection prevention practices really strongly implemented prior to the pandemic, although we were starting to get there. And so then you hit this you know, you hit this crisis situation. And so um, it was just very evident that we really had a lot of catch up to do, um, to be ready and to, to work in this, this situation.
1: So I, I think we have all heard some stories along those lines. And most folks would say now they're better prepared to deal with COVID. You know, we know how to treat it. For the most part, we know how to contain it, though these variants uh, make that uh, different and, and a changing target all the time. But do you think there are some lessons here that are powerful enough to last? Or are we going to let our guard down and go back to some old behaviors around infection control?
0: I do believe, and if there's a silver lining to this pandemic, it's... I feel that the public and even within long-term care, it has cracked open an understanding of just how real the problem is. And within long-term care, we're not we're not just talking about COVID. We're talking we have multi-drug resistant organisms such as MRSA, and, and I won't go into all the names, but um, a lot of uh, resistant organisms that that are creating a lot of harm. And so we have an awareness now of infection prevention practices and what we should be doing. However, the problem is, and i want I want the listeners to understand in long-term care, we're still operating very much as we were we have been throughout the last two plus years. We're still wearing eye protection and ninety five respirators because it's a vulnerable population. So many of our practices, Are still very much um, intense as far as the personal protective equipment we wear while caring for the residents. And this has led to staff burnout. And so, what's challenging is keeping a strong infection prevention and control program while we are having a hard time maintaining staff. It's like we know what to do, but we don't necessarily have the staffing to do it. Um, And then, of course, we have other. Other situations that occur that we have to direct our focus and resources to as well that may take away from infection prevention.
1: And you mentioned losing staff. I mean, I know it's terribly hard to hire an infection preventionist in long term care, too. It's a competitive market for those individuals. I'm curious what your reaction was. Uh, I guess I'll go back. I think it's really critical. If you're going to stay on top of these things, particularly with the staff challenges, you need that point person, the manager, and I would say that's the infection preventionist. So I want to get your take on CMS deciding that it should only be a part-time uh, position. It can be more than that, um, but saying that that's the, the minimal requirement to have someone appointed part-time. Is that enough?
0: It's not enough, but here, <laughs> that's, that's the blanket answer I'll have, but... Um, the big butt behind that. So as I go back a little bit, November 28th of 2019 was when the the federal rule became effective to have at least a part-time infection preventionist on staff. And, you know, we could say that that was a little too late with this pandemic, you know. Right. The majority of IPs that I work with and I encounter are very, very, very new to infection preventionists. I would say the majority of IPs are they're just brand new to this role, and it's it's dramatically changed even from before the pandemic with with the copious amounts of reporting that is required of COVID uh, vaccinations into the into the CDC's National Healthcare Safety Network. So the responsibility of the infection preventionist is definitely a full time role. However, we go back to talking about staffing and. And unfortunately, even in some buildings I go to, they even have the IP is really only on paper only as even part time because they don't even have nurses to work the floor Mm -hmm. to care for the residents. So it absolutely needs to be a full time position. But we're in a situation now where we've got to be able to care for the residents. And so many times those IPs are pulled to the floor. Um, and so we, we, you know, this is the this is the challenge we have, um, is is the staffing right now, and and getting the the right staff in to be able to work in this capacity.
1: So it's definitely a focus on finding a balance there. You've got to have someone, but the reality of the situation might limit that.
0: Yeah. Now, now, interestingly, California has mandated in 2021 that the skilled nursing facilities have to have a full-time infection preventionist and they're doing it. So does that speak to, if it's mandated, we do it. If it's not, we don't, I I'm, you know, I don't know, but they have taken that step to mandating the full-time infection preventionist. What one way that we can achieve this is by not having that role be required as a nurse. I'm not a nurse, I'm an epidemiologist. I have different training. And even in the CMS regulations, it has multiple roles that you can, and an education and expertise that you can carry. Right. And so if we adopted that and brought in other professionals, then we may find it easier to fill this
1: role and you may not have the kneeje capability of putting that person on the floor when you need them they'll, they'll be able to maintain the job they're supposed to be doing
0: exactly and so I know that it's I know that it's scary to to jump in and and like and take this approach but you know even before the pandemic I, I kind of preached prevention I still preach prevention. If we invest in prevention, it saves us so much, not only in the harms and the deaths that are caused from infections, but if you think about it, what, Who? as the staff, we don't want to wear PPE all the time, caring for our residents. So if we can prevent the infections, then that creates a happier environment where we're not wearing PPE all the time. I mean, there's so many benefits to really being engaged in this program and preventing these infections from occurring in the first place.
1: Okay, so let's talk about some other strategies you think need to happen, because I think the whole idea of your book is to push for repair, that's in the subtitle. Mm -hmm. So what are some things that might be vital, uh, maybe your top three that that you'd like to see on the side of reform?
0: Well, so, First, the IP and the the infection preventionists and having specialized training. I am so excited to say, you know, I wrote this book. It was published in April. And one of the recommendations that I had was that APIC, which is um, the Association for Professionals Infection Control and Epidemiology, create a certi- a board certification such like CIC specific for long-term care. And they're actually doing that. Um, right. I was... Yeah and so um I was able to to participate with this committee um and and now we're beta testing it so to me that's like that's exactly what we need we need the specialized focused training um for the IPs so that they are recognized as the professional that they are the next is for the staffing you know ratios and and there's a lot there's a lot of buzz going on about that President Biden's administration is calling for improved staffing ratios. I know there's um, arguments on both sides. I don't think anybody argues that we need improved staffing ratios If it's it's just the challenge as as with everything right now with the lack of staff we can't just, you know, magically create staff. So we have to create funding for this. We need to perhaps in, increase the Medicare and Medicaid reimbursements. But if you think about it, if if you're the best nurse on this planet, and you have you know 20 patients to care for, do you, do you think it's physically possible to truly provide the best care that that res those residents deserve? I mean, it's just not humanly possible. So we really do need improved staffing ratios. The other, uh, of course, I talk about this. I didn't intend to talk about this in my book, but it was so front and center was regulatory reform in, in the way that the survey process is handled. And just the extreme punitive nature that our healthcare providers are under, all surveys were halted. During the pandemic, except for targeted infection control surveys for nursing homes. And there was $80 million funded for these surveys and $15 million handed out in citations. And to the consumer, that may seem like that's helpful, and maybe that's not even enough. But what the consumer doesn't understand is many of these, and I was witness to it, and this is this was the biggest pain point was that. These surveys become this gotcha, and these nitpicky. Um, we're gonna we're gonna not leave until we find something wrong, and we just need to change that mentality. Nursing home operators and staff are not coming to work to screw up and do a bad job, mm-hmm. and so we need to treat them as the professionals they are. We need to better train the surveyors, and we need to look at how we actually handle this survey process. Because this process alone is driving a lot of really good people out of the industry. Because we're just treated with such contempt all the time. And who wants to go to work feeling that way? And nobody does. So we really need focus on improving that
1: system as well. And I think you are speaking to the right crowd with that. I don't know of many people who would disagree on that that last one, especially. But let's talk about quick change, because certainly regulatory reform does not come easily or quickly. What are some things that nursing homes can do to help themselves, particularly on the infection control front right now?
0: Well, this is what I love to talk about, because you're right. I mean, change takes time. And I'm the most impatient person on this planet, at least from my perspective, because change cannot come fast enough. And so there are many things that we can do. First of all, in our facilities, we can really, we can really embrace infection prevention. We can really know that that it makes a difference. Invest in our staff, invest in the infection preventionists, create a culture of infection prevention. Um, I really lean heavily on the prevention piece because that will, we don't have to control it if it's not in the building. So let's prevent it. We can look for simple tips such as Do we have easy access to hand sanitizers? CDC recommends having them inside and outside of every resident room. But nearly almost 100% of facilities I go to, they don't have that. They may have it inside or outside, but not both. So, in increasing easy access, makes it hardwired in our brain so we can do it. So, that's one simple step that can
1: help decrease the spread of infections just with our hand hygiene. Terrific. Well, I would suggest that folks who want to get more uh, ideas from you can check out the book. It's called Broken. And Buffy, thanks again for your insights. And and certainly for writing, I want to say it, it is not a, just a numbers story. It is There's a personal story there. There are your experiences. It's really an, an easy read. So thank you for that. And for McKnight's, I'm Kim Marcellus. Have a great day.
0: Thank you for listening to McKnight's Long-Term Care Newsmakers podcast. For the latest in long-term care news, visit McKnight's.com.